today we pick up the subject of our God is sovereign. A few weeks ago, I had kind of done the illustration off of the center screen with a picture of the ocean where it's kind of like uh, this series is kind of like coming over to the ocean, the expanse of who God is and the amazingness of it, and kind of reaching down each Sunday and kind of grabbing up a handful of who our God is. Um, and that's what we've been doing. And I want for you to understand that what, what we're doing is not we're reaching over here and grabbing a handful and that a handful, and all of these are separated. Uh, that's not who God is. It's not an element, an element, an element, an element. It's, no, each handful actually has every element of who God is that we're talking about. It just kind of happens to be we're focusing in on one each Sunday. And today it's our God is sovereign. I want to remind you of what we've been talking about because it's really important with this subject. In fact, I think it is quite interesting, A.W. Tozer, Jen Wilkin, in their books about uh, the attributes of God actually include this subject, the sovereignty of God, at the very end after, after they've talked through all the other kind of attributes of who God is. And I think there's some good reasons for that. I actually put it at this point in time because after talking about who our God is and these elements, well, let's kind of bring those up so far. Our triune so far, eternal God, what we've been talking about so far, is self-existent, self-sufficient. Our triune eternal God is all-present, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-holy, and he is unchanging in all of those. And, And then we move into the, and our God is creator, and last Sunday, our God is covenant maker. Uh, All of these things are critical in understanding who our God is, and all of these carry into the sovereignty of God. By the way, I'm just going to have us go ahead and put up the remaining uh, for this series. Our God is faithful. Our God is merciful. Our God is gracious. Our God is jealous. On Mother's Day, we'll be doing our God is good, uh, and then long-suffering, just. And on Easter weekend, we're going to be doing our God is loving, or our God is love. And we'll be picking those up. All of these pour into who our God is. And know this, all of these pour into this subject of today. Now it's third service. I'm just going to tell you straight up uh, on this. It's interesting for me because with this subject, I love this subject. I love the conversation about our God is sovereign. It's one of the most uh, heart-grabbing, wrestling through. I don't know if I can understand it or ever will understand it. It's also... One of the most personal things. And I've been, I've been even preaching this two services already, and I still walk away, and it's like, man, I'm just not hitting it. I'm just not hitting it. Um, and it's one of those things. <laughs> it's one of those things where you come across certain subjects, and you just want us all to understand it. But we can't. We will never master this subject. But we are not about mastering it, we are about grasping it. And just even in the last couple services watching people, I just, I'm like, man, it's just all that we're wrestling through, how God help us to pull this all together. So I'm wrestling through it with you, know this. This is not one of those sermons where it's like, God is sovereign, get good with it, go. That's not happening. Because I have some questions. Why did my dad die at 61? My brother at 62. Why have we had people here in our own church family 
four boys with a mom who passed away. Two boys with a dad that just passed away. We have people sitting in this room who've lost a child, who've lost a grandchild. Like, explain that one, Doug. It's a very personal subject, isn't it? And I'm going to ask God for his help. So God, this is a giant subject of reality. This is the subject that oftentimes for some people becomes the stopping point on being able to say that you are God and that you are even worthy of our attention. In it, I feel so frail and small and trying to help us through it. But I actually think coming out of it, that's what should happen. We are small. You are big. And we need your help. And so we call for it. In your name we pray. Amen. Our God is sovereign. Three words would be the defining words for me. Reign, rule, and control. If you were to Google it, which I did, or if you were to go to a dictionary, which I didn't do, um, you would find out that's what sovereignty in its generalized reality means. Who reigns? Who rules? Who has control? Now, when our kids were growing up, Karen and I said, we reign, we rule, and we are in control. Get good with it. <laughs> and there's some reality to that. And yet, it's with countries, interesting, we're in a, a, a political fight in our culture today over essentially who's going to reign, who's going to rule, who's going to have control. And by the way, when you bring this subject up, it just gets at the very core of who we are because the truth of the matter is, is you and I are in a constant battle day in and day out. We want to reign and we want to rule and we want to control our lives as kings and queens of our own little kingdoms where everyone in our lives are subjects to our kingdom. And so when we talk about this subject that God is sovereign, that God reigns, that God rules, that God is in control, there is something that bristles up within us, just who we are, but also the experiences of life. And so it's a tender subject. It's a hard subject. But this is where God meets us, and we want to meet God here. So we're talking about who reigns, who rules, who is in control. Now, I want for you to know in this uh, midweek, I'm just like, oh my goodness, Lord Jesus, where do I go with this subject? Because I do love it, and I, I can play devil's advocate in it, I, can, I, I, I enjoy the conversations on it. And then I'm just reminded that this whole series about who is, is about who our God is. Not about all the aspects of what that then means or how to carry that out, but who our God is. And so I just want to start to, for you to know today is about laying a foundation 
of why our God is sovereign in control, okay? That's where we're going today. And there's three reasons for that. You can see it on your notes where we're going today. Our God is sovereign because he says he is, because of who he is, and by the way, because of what we've seen in others who have lived over time and in our present, okay? So we're going to go these. This is the foundation. And you're kind of like, yeah, but all my how, how questions. Like, how is it then that if that's the case, then, then how can God be good and God be loving and yet he allowed for you fill in the blank? You know what I'm talking about, right? I mean, again, in my own life, I'm like, how is it that, God, that you allowed me to, uh, to uh, did it to where I went to four high schools in four states? I'm just telling you, I wasn't too thrilled about that, God. And uh, you have your litany of those. All the hows, though, how about it works out, comes down to the why is God sovereign first. That's the base. Let's go there. So first, why is God sovereign Number one, because God has said so. Because God has said so. You have a list of 19 passages on your sermon notes page. And you are probably thinking, the dude is nuts. Are we going to go through all of those? And the answer to that is, yes, I am nuts. And yes, we are going to go through all those. But in my love for you, I'm not going to ask that you turn to all of these, okay? Um, because we're, this is kind of a systematic theology study, and we need to see this on the whole. So what I'm doing is, is I'm going to have these all up on the screen, and you can follow along. I want them on your page so that you can maybe mark some or, or highlight some or put a question by something, and you can bring that to sm your small group, and you can dive into some other things along with it. But I'm setting a groundwork, and I think the most important thing to begin with is to hear what God has said, okay? Just hear this is a time right now to be learners, to, to, to not allow our emotions of the subject, even our predetermined thoughts at this point on the subject, to come in. Just hear. Just hear what Scripture has to say. Got it? With me? So here we go. Let's just listen to what God has said. Genesis chapter 1. Gee, I'm surprised he starts there. <laughs> Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, what? In the beginning, God. I have hounded on Genesis 1 and keep coming back, and there's some real reasons for that because I think Genesis 1, 2, and 3 are particular foundational for really understanding who God is and what God is doing. But when you come to these first four words, I'm continuing to be impressed by the profound meaning of those first four words. In the beginning, God. Why is it that God is sovereign, as we say? Well, because God was here before we were. Uh, he beat us here. <laughs> in fact, we know out of the text, in the beginning, God created. God created everything. The fact of God's creating everything, God didn't step into something that already existed. God didn't step into something that was already there. God stepped into something that, oh, he didn't step into. He created it. And that tells you so much about who God is. God created, and that was one of the things we've talked about, who he is. Genesis chapter 1, let's keep going. Deuteronomy 4 says, Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. Why is God sovereign? Well, the scriptures say because there is none other like him. Deuteronomy 10 Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heavens of heavens, 
and the earth with all that it is. Why is he sovereign? Because it's all his. It belongs to him. Who's got ownership? He does. Well, I don't like it. I don't like that he has ownership. I'm just, just listen, just hear what the scriptures have to say. First uh, Chronicles 16, uh, you read it. Uh, here, I'll get you started. Let the heavens. Isn't that interesting? Those three words. God is making the declaration, I reign. I reign. Again, we may be like, yeah, but how does that all work out? No, 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 but, but just stay here with me. Why is God sovereign? It begins with the fact that he says that he is, and he says that he reigns. First Chronicles 29, yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. First Chronicles, or Second Chronicles 20. And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. Psalm 29, you read it. The Lord The Lord sits enthroned. The Lord is the one who says that he's the one who sits on the throne. And the Lord says, Scripture says, that he is the one who is enthroned in that position forever. Psalm 93, the Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He is put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from old. You are from everlasting. Why is it that we say God is sovereign? Psalm 115, our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. Now before you go, yeah, but I, there's, I got pushback on that because I'm not so thrilled about the things that he does that he pleases. And how does that, just gonna, again, just don't go there yet. Just listen. Just hear what scripture has to say and hold on to it here for the time being. Psalm 135, for I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. Not a typo, that's the way it reads. Isaiah 40, to whom then will you liken God or what likeness compare with him? Do you not know? Do you not hear? Uh, Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. Isaiah 45, I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. Pay attention. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. 
Isaiah 46, I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Lamentations, book you're often in. Lamentations 3. Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Doesn't it just well in you, but I thought you were good? I understand. But just process. Lamentations 5, you read it. But you... Colossians 1, speaking of Jesus Christ. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. Colossians 2. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him. Who is the head of all rule and authority? Revelation 15. You read this one. Great. Mm. Revelation 19, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. It's interesting, even in reading that statement right there, isn't it true? I mean, you and I are sitting, standing here and reading through all those and maybe you're at a place where you're like, man, I agree with all of that. And then then we come hallelujah and yet there's this thing within us that we still are kind of like, yeah, but, but how... But how does that work out? I want for you to know this. In no way is this going through these passages intended to stifle the questions. You read through the Psalms and you find the psalmist all through it knowing about who you are and yet them wrestling out how all this works. Well, if you are that, then, then God, how is it that my enemies are, are winning the battle? God, is it, if, if, if you are who you say it are, then, then how is it that it seems like those who are evil get everything good? How is it it seems, I, you know what I'm talking about? I want for you to know, even when we say hallelujah for the Lord our God almighty reigns, there's part of us in that that just goes, I think I agree with that, but how do I handle and I understand? But just listen. And by the way, I'm going to throw one more verse in because, you know, we finished with 19 texts as I looked at the list and I'm like, man, it's just not good to finish on an odd number. 
So, <laughs> so here's one more. Revelation 22.13. Just listen. Revelation 22.13 says this. God does. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the first and the last. I am the beginning and I am the end. Why does God reign, rule, and control as the sovereign one? Well, there you go. And isn't it interesting that Genesis 1 opens with, in the beginning, God, and the last chapter of the Bible concludes with, I am the beginning and the end. If I were to pull the three favorite shortest ones of what we've just read, the three would be Genesis 1, in the beginning, God. Psalm 115, 3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Revelation 19.6, hallelujah, for the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Because if the God of Scripture doesn't reign, then who does? And there's really only a few answers to that. Yes, he does. Or no, he doesn't. Some other being does. Or no one does. And I even want to encourage you to wrestle that out through life. I've come to the conclusion personally in my own life, there has to be a God. And through my own journey and coming to understand different presentations and different approaches to who that God is, I've come to the clear conclusion that it is the God of this Bible who reigns over all, even when I don't get it. And what we've just taken a look at is, is because he said he has. Secondly, why is it that God reigns? Because of who God is. This isn't going to take very long, I think, on this. But you never know with me. Um, who our God is. Uh, that's what we're doing in this whole series. We're talking about who our God is. Okay, that's what he said. Now let's talk about who our God is. Why does God sovereignly reign, rule, and control. Uh, a second answer is because of who God is. Let's just think about the things we've already talked about God. We've talked about that our God is triune, eternal, self-existent, self-sufficient. Self-existent, that means that God was here. That's Genesis 1. That means that God was here before we were here. Self-sufficient, that also means that God doesn't, the Godhead does not need us. You do know that. The Godhead was not bored and wanted someone to do or someone to mess with. No, the Godhead decided in its own sovereign will to, to create all that we know as creation, including you and me. And ultimately, we, we, we know from Scripture that the purpose of all that is somehow in it all, it is going to be increasingly bringing glory to the Godhead. It will please the Godhead. And then we continue and we think of the next three all-present, all-powerful, all-knowing. By the way, think of it, all-present. That means, as we talked about some weeks ago, that, that our God is present everywhere all the time. And in that, our God, as a result even of that, our God knows all things all the time. All things past, all things present, all things future. All are seen in one thing, for the Lord. Time was even a creation of God. And yet in that, think about it, he's all-present, all-knowing. Oh, right there, we can say that qualifies him to be all-sovereign. 
Because you and I can't be all places, all times, no, even just with our own teeny little lives. And by the way, you and I can't be uh, all-knowing with everything. And God is all-powerful in it all. He can do anything, everything in it. Listen, all of those three mean that our God is sovereign. And so if we come in and we begin to want to have the debate with God and the discussion with God, which is fine, I'm not against that. You see that in the Psalms with it. God can handle our pushbacks in it. Okay, and even in that, as we come to God, listen, once we start saying anything related to, yeah, but how, yeah, but how is it that that, we are already attacking those attributes. You didn't know what you were doing. You weren't around when this was going on. In fact, you're, you're trying to figure it out as we go, and you really don't have all the power. You see what's happening there? When we begin addressing this subject, we're stepping on holy ground, not just of trying to understand the subject of God's sovereignty, but we are stepping on the subject of who God is at the very core of it all. And then when we come into the, he is creator, oh, Genesis 1, he was here before we were, that he is unchanging, Listen, God is never not all-knowing, all-present, all-powerful, oh, and I forgot, all-holy. That means that in all of that, there is never a moment where God sins, does wrong, can be blamed for evil. But then why did he allow it? Small groups have a blast with that one. (laughs) Today I'm laying foundation. Because once you start into that, you begin attacking that God is holy. And by the way, last Sunday, that he's covenant maker. How cool is that? That God will covenant himself to as many as received him with the new covenant, with the work of his blood and his sacrifice. He covenants himself to you to redeem you and forgive you and save you and hold you forever. And to begin questioning other things in life, sometimes is forgetting that God has covenanted himself to us. By the way, know this, God has not covenanted himself that everything would be according to our will. God has not covenanted himself to us that we would experience perfect life. God's purpose in this covenant relationship is that he would grow us and mature us to become more like Christ, Romans 8, 28, 29, I'll mention here in just a moment, for his glory. You see, his purposes are different than ours. And so why is God sovereign? Just laying the groundwork on it. Well, because of what God has said. And then secondly, in that laying that brickwork at the foundation of the conversation is because of who God is. And lastly, I'm still not pleased with the wording I've got here for it, but because of how God has worked in people's lives and what we see coming out of them. In fact, uh, will you turn to Genesis 50, please? Genesis 50. I want to take a few minutes before I read out of Genesis 50 and have you consider this. All of the people over redemptive history were in how they have wrestled with and thought through and even some live reality. Part of what helps me understand God's sovereignty is the fact that other people have lived it out. For instance, Adam and Eve. God creates Adam and Eve and he says, rule and reign, have dominion over, subdue over all of this. But I got one thing, I don't want you to do that. And they did that. 
And, and here's the thing. We, we come with the question of, well, well, then why did God do that? But part of what's interesting to me is nowhere do we hear Adam and Eve accusing God of setting them up. Just even in the whole conversation, sometimes the, the things that we think and we wonder, the very people who were there at that moment, we don't see anything of them asking the question. Where is Adam and Eve going, wait a second, God, you set us up. You really aren't good. You really aren't loving. In fact, you really didn't even know what you were doing. Those are thoughts oftentimes that we can think about the whole thing or that people can think about. The, but I don't find anywhere where Adam and Eve were like, you set us up. Now, we do find Adam blame shifting. Like, the woman you made me, you know, gave me, she's, you know, that's, not, that's not what we're talking about. Nowhere are they accusing God of setting them up. And yet sometimes we think that whole issue. Uh, Noah. Noah's doing his thing. I don't know what his career was before. Computer technician or something probably. And God just at his computer desk says, got a job for you. Um, actually, I'm okay. <laughs> and God gives him a job and uh, he and Mrs. Noah and their kids spent a hundred years uh, building an archiarchy. In the song in the olden days, for you younger ones. And it's like, uh, why am I doing this? And then over those hundred years of building, it's like during that time, they receive a hundred years of mocking. Oftentimes, we miss that reality. This was not an easy process. God did not give them like a Lincoln log set. They had to, every tree, Every day, move it in, no tractor, no tr chainsaw, none of that. And I'm sure there were some busted up fingers and some sore body parts. And yet in it, nowhere do we find Noah, even after the flood, nowhere do we find Noah going, this is so unfair of you, God. Isn't that interesting? Noah is not accusing God of doing what's wrong with his own life or even what's wrong in bringing judgment on the world. Abraham and Sarah. Abraham and Sarah, God uh, selects sovereignly, picks Abraham out of the bunch on the world. Why Abraham? I don't know. I really don't know because just God can reign, rule, and control. And that's who he picked. And Abraham didn't earn it. God just picked him. And, and yet God says, hey, I'm going to build a nation through you. And yeah, we don't have no kids. He's like, I know, I'm going to give you a kid. See, if I were God, I would have just like at that moment, by the time that he got home to tell Sarah about it, I would already have her nine months pregnant. I mean, in the whole thing of it where it's like, you know what, this is what I'm going to do. And when you get home, I mean, in like nine minutes, she's going to do nine months. And then you're going to have a child. That's the way I would do it, but God didn't do it that way. Ruth. Man, Ruth is just in a hard situation of life, wondering what in the world is going on. Long story short, she ends up in a field, meets this guy. And Ruth is in the lineage of the Savior of the world. She, only a sovereign God can do that. Job. 
God sovereignly allows Satan to, in the text of Job chapter 1, go after all that Job has. Oh, and Satan does, because Satan is not a lover of people. Satan is a hater of anything that is God's, and humans have the image of God stamped on them. And he's a destroyer. And so what does Satan do? Satan takes out Job's empire, takes out his employees, and get this, takes out his children. And we're told in the beginning of Job that the reason uh, God is making reference to Job in front of Satan is because Job is a godly, godly man. Like, look at him. Do you see that? Look at him. He's being faithful to me unlike you could be. And in this, his children, I can't even fathom that, friends. Some of you could maybe fathom it more than I can. And we read at the end of Job chapter 1, we find Job, it says that he tore his robe, and sh- his robe and shaved his head. By the way, that's giving us the insight that Job is not like, uh, let me read the next part because he, Job then says, naked I came, naked I shall return, the Lord gave, the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Know this, what's not happening is Job is going, ah, my empire, ah, my employees, ah, my ten kids, they're all gone. Well, you know what? God is sovereign. Naked I came. It's all going to be good. That is not happening. Job tears his robe, shaves his head. That is agony. That is what the text is telling us. He is in utter agony. He lost his children. And he doesn't even know what's going on. And from my position, he has every right to curse God. He has every right to deny that there is a God. And yet we find him there bringing a theological thinking to, listen, naked I came, naked I went. Listen, the Lord is sovereign. He can do as he pleases. And I'm going to wrestle it. And we find out later, Job is even like, I just want to curse God and die. Gives me hope. He wrestled through it too. And friends, I could just go on and on through the scriptures. David, he's God's anointed. And I would think, God, just put him in, takes all out, put him in. No, no, that's not what God's ways. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Daniel 3. Here are these three young men. They're about to be thrown into the fiery furnace because they're doing what God would want them to do. And they make this sovereign of God statement. Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. Our God is big enough he could save us from this. But here's the better part. But then they say, but if not... In other words, if that is not God's plan in this, in fact, God could have the plan that you push us in and we burn up, and by the way, and then with God. Is that such a bad thing? You see, we oftentimes think that living here is the thing. I'm just telling you, I'm getting to the place where it's like, goodness sakes, I almost dislocated my thumb this morning shaking Paul Strakowski's hand, not kidding, from an old injury, and I'm just like, I'm out. (laughs) Just take me now. I mean, everything's falling apart. And and in that, they're like, listen, there is a God. Jesus did not tell his disciples, hey, I will give you a calm life. 
and a simple life and a wealthy life and a perfectly healthy life and I will give you an easy... He doesn't say that. He says the exact opposite of that. And then he goes to the cross. And the, own, the Godhead itself experiences wrath poured out as the Father pours out the full wrath for sin on the Son. Hanging as a criminal. The one who created everything. The apostles, Stephen, Paul. Paul talks about how in 2 Corinthians 11, that he was beaten, that he was stoned, that he was starved, that he was danger and danger and danger everywhere. And he talks about how just the local, the weight of the local churches. 2 Timothy 4, it's so interesting. Hey, have you ever had church hurts? So did Paul. Paul says in 2 Timothy Timothy 4 that he was deserted by Christian leaders, that he was deserted by Christian believers. Even the apostle Paul knew church hurts. Exclamation point. And then we come to Joseph. Just quickly. You most likely know the story of Joseph. Joseph was the youngest of, at least at the time, second youngest, but you know, and I'm the youngest of three brothers, and the youngest are kind of brats. You know, that's our gift. And uh, to you who are older, we're here to mature you. <laughs> so he's kind of a brat brother, and, and the older brothers, they want to get rid, he's dad's favorite, and uh, um, they want to get rid of him, and, and so what do they do? They think about killing him, and then they sell him as a slave. Now, you want to talk about a dysfunctional family? There you go. The brothers sell him as a slave, and, he, and know this, I do not think, I do not think Joseph is in that caravan that's on its way to Egypt, and it's going, <laughs> God is good. He's sovereign, and I know this is awesome. I don't think Joseph is thinking that at all. And then when he's in jail, I don't think Joseph is like, you know what, if I could be anywhere on the planet, I would want to be right here in jail. By the way, for doing what was right. And then, later on, as life normally works its way, Joseph then sees more. And in chapter 50, we're finally there. Verse 18. His brothers came and they fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Humility. As for you, you meant evil against me. I love that. You see, because they they were meaning evil. They were choosing to act like that. That is what was happening. They were intending evil against him, but then he says, but God meant it for good. Doug, pull those two together. I I can't, friends. But I am not going to remove the one without the other. They did mean it evil, and yet God is so big that he can even use evil for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. By the way, and if you think that the story, because it turns out good for Joseph, that then is what the goal is, I was pushed back. You're wrong on that. Because every person over the years, and decades, and centuries that have been martyred for Christ, 
do not have that story. They have burned up, bled out, died in, being faithful unto the Lord. And it is not about you. the end will turn out well for you. No, no, no. It is about all will be for the glory of the Lord. Whether it be death or whether it become prime minister of Egypt. You see, Joseph understood Isaiah 55, 8 through 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than yours, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Joseph understood what would become to known as Romans 8, 28, and 29. That we know that all things work together for good. We in our Americanized uh, present first word culture think that becomes rich, healthy, and everything wonderful. No, it's, chapter, it's verse 29 that tells what the good is. Verse 29 tells that the good is that we would be conformed to be more like Christ. You see, God's goal is not to get easy life. God's goal in his redeemed, covenanted children is that he wants to grow us and shape us and make us more like Christ for his glory. We want easy life. I do. I wrestle with this every day, every week, every month of my life. And you do too. I want easy and comfortable. But God's like, no, that's not what I do. I want you as my child, and I want to grow you in maturity that you would become more and more like Christ for my glory and for your good. And friends, know this, one day it will all make sense. Man, this is a hard subject. But it's not just about the past, but it's also about what God has done in the lives of the present. Last Sunday, second service, Matt was baptized. I'm a couple minutes over, but that's okay, your third service. Matt was baptized, and uh, I'll just say it this way. Only a sovereign God can do this. Only a sovereign God can take a heroin addict and do a work. You watch. Well, I'm joined by Matt Thomas and his entourage. (laughs) I first met Matt, it was a Labor Day picnic, and uh, actually Cody Myers came up to him and said, hey, whose small group are you in? He said, I'm not in a small group. And and Cody, you were more than persistent, man. Like, it, it was beyond, beyond persistence, and I don't think Matt had a choice, and came to small group, and Matt, God has been working powerfully in your life, not just these last couple of years, but over time, over your life, share with us your story, just how God has been working in your life. <clears throat> Growing up, <clears throat> my exposure to God was minimal. We would attend church for Easter and Christmas services, but little else the rest of the year. <clears throat> when I was 13, I found myself especially moved following one Easter service. I was convicted of the need for a savior and raised my hand indicating I was one of the many in the sanctuary making a decision for Christ. However, my expression of a desire for Christ to be a savior that day did not lead 
to repentance and turning from sin or an actual relationship with him or his people. I would continue to live my own life apart from God. Even waking up in the hospital after ODing on heroin was not enough to snap me out of my self-destructive behavior. A few months later, <clears throat> my girlfriend and I were using heroin together, and I passed out, standing against the wall. When I awoke, her lifeless body was on the floor. Frantic, I called 911 and began CPR. I thought it was working, and she was still alive and breathing. Unfortunately, the paramedics would tell me she had long since passed. This tragedy finally rocked my world. <clears throat> While grieving and heavily traumatized by death and loss, the Holy Spirit began heavily working in my life. Months later, now clean from drugs, God began to draw me closer to a woman who had seen me at my worst. She'd seen all my broken relationships and drug use. Not judging, she would tell me about a God who wasn't just a Christmas and Easter story, but instead a God seeking a personal relationship with me through his son, Jesus Christ. Today, the beautiful woman in my story is my wife, Olivia. We are blessed with two beautiful children, Liam and Aria. While many drug users suffer from addiction, since that day, the Lord has removed any desire whatsoever to return to drugs or their lifestyle. The Lord has done miraculous work in my life, preserving me from death, forgiving me for all my sins, and bringing me into relationship with him and his people. I am so excited and joyful today to be sharing what the Lord has done and tell my testimony of his faithfulness. I hope my baptism today is a visible experience of the amazing work the Lord has been doing in my life. Today, I not only have a savior for my sins, but a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and his people. Amen. So based on your profession of faith, we have the joy of baptizing you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. How is it that all the various things took place in Matt's life and so forth? I... can't explain. But that's also not my job to explain for God. It is our job to understand who our God is, what he has said, and how he has worked. And out of that, I walk away from Matt's baptism and I go, there is a God and he is sovereign. And I'm going to start there and wrestle it out from there. May the Lord do a work in our lives. Lord, thank you so much for your goodness and kindness and love. And yet we say those, and yet we know that the world is filled with all kinds of hurt, and our lives as well. And there's a sensitivity in just trying to grapple all that, and we're finite. We're not all-knowing, we're not all-present, we're not all-powerful, and we're definitely not all-holy. And so it's really hard for us to wrap our round, hands around you. This is what you say that you are. And as small as we are, it's hard for us to put our hands around you. And you know that. And I thank you for your patience with us. God, I pray that we would grow in grasping our understanding of who you are and what you've said and what you have done. And that would be a 
a, a grasping work that shows hope in our lives, that shows confidence in who you are, not in ourselves, that it shows a humbling in ourselves. We're not in control, but you are. That doesn't mean let go and let God. That means we press ahead knowing who you are, and we'll let you work out all the details. But one grasping point at the time we go, do your work. Help us through it. We need you desperately. In your name we pray. Amen.